This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is the Reverend Tyler Connolly. Tyler is the co-author of the book, The Children Are Free, a book re-examining the biblical evidence on same-sex relationships, which he wrote back in 2000, and he is also a UCC minister. Tyler went to the same college that I went to, um, Indiana Wesleyan University, but he went there a few years before I did in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, during his time there, he actually came out as gay um, and was openly gay at on the campus, which, um, if you are familiar with Indiana Wesleyan, is a, um, not necessarily a common thing. Um, and in this conversation, he talks about that experience. He talks about his, um, these sorts of things that, that he dealt with there. And I do want to provide a content warning here, a trigger warning here at the top. He does speak about, um, rep- uh, conversion therapy, reparative therapy, as well as um, suicide um, or thoughts of suicide. So um, please keep that in mind as you listen to this. Um, But what we talk about throughout this conversation is actually um, very powerful. He has some really apt descriptions of the sorts of things that evangelicals sort of face as they go through um, their own deconstruction or deconversion or whatever the sort of path that those that evangelicals find themselves on. Um, we talk about the sense of being given something that's poisonous, as well as a sense of disenfranchised grief. Um, both of those are really powerful um, images that Tyler uses to describe his experience, and I think. Um, you'll get something out of this conversation. I'm really glad that uh, he was able to come in, uh, onto the show and, and share this with me. Um, I do want to tell you that there is a little bit of uh, sound quality issues here um, in, the sh- in the show. Um, we I tried to overcome those as best I could. I did see that there was an iTunes review mentioning that. I am working on improving that. Um, sometimes um, some audio quality things are a little beyond my control. Um, but if you want to help that, you can actually help by supporting me via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. Um, and uh, if you support me there, then I, I may be able to add a little bit, improve a little bit on the audio quality as well. Um, otherwise, you can also just leave an iTunes review if you like this show. You can let other people know about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain. And you can follow the show on Twitter at ExvangelicalPod. All right, everyone, let's get right into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Tyler Connolly. Tyler is a United Church of Christ, excuse me, a United Church of Christ minister, a listener to the show, as well as the author of the book The Children Are Free, which is a book about homosexuality and the Bible. Tyler, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, we, 
um, before we we get into it a little bit, one one interesting thing that connected us was actually that we do uh, share the same alma mater, and we'll get to your time at Indian Wesleyan. <laughs> but but that uh, yeah. was one thing that um, was just one of those sorts of connections that that we had um, randomly connected about a while ago. Um, but before we get into your time, I saw, and, <laughs> I saw your Twitter. I saw your Twitter the other day saying that you had. Your senior year, you had to um, listen to forty um, cassette tapes of Apple. <laughs> yeah, I think I had a similar experience. Oh. It wasn't forty, but <laughs> yeah, so I remember having to listen to a whole bunch of them in order to graduate. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, yeah. So before we, I, 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 I feel like I just jumped the gun a little bit there, but let's, um, let's hear about. Um, about you a little bit more and, and your story of where where you grew up and, and what your your early childhood and adolescence was like as far as your religious upbringing and everything else. Yeah. Um, so my parents are Wesleyan missionaries. And um, for people who don't know, the Wesleyan Church, it's very similar to the Church of the Nazarene as far as theologically. They um, The Wesleyans actually split from the Methodists over slavery, which is a good thing. They were abolitionists. Mm -hmm. The other Methodists wouldn't come out against slavery. But then in the early part of the 20th century, they became part of the holiness movement. And so the holiness movement was a movement that basically um, was focused on being holy, living a holy life, um, showing that you were a Christian by how holy you were. And um, so that was the environment that I was raised in. You know, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't watch movies, you don't dance, you don't go with girls who do any of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and my parents are missionaries. I grew up in Zambia, Africa, uh, lived there until I was 12. Also, um, after that, we were assigned to South Korea, and, um, but then lost our visa. So we ended up in uh, the Philippines and, um, the Philippines was a really good place for me. I went to, um, in South Korea, we went to a very expensive private school where we were the poor missionary kids. And it was a really, really hard experience hmm. in South, in the Philippines, we went to, uh, Faith Academy, which was, uh, also a missionary kids school, but, and Christian, but like Christian in a good way, um, very loving and kind. It was a good healing place after a lot of moving. Um, and then ended up, my father decided that the only way he was going to get back into South Korea was as a, a professor. And in order to do that, he needed a doctorate. And so I went to high school in Los Angeles while dad went to Fuller Theological Seminary. And um, and then after high school, went to Indiana Wesleyan because it was free. For me, As a, at the time, they'd no longer do this. I think they now have some scholarships. But at the time, if you were a, West, a child of Wesleyan missionaries, you could get a five-year grant to Indiana Wesleyan. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's how I ended up there, um, because it was free. And um, and then came out 
while I was at Indiana Wesleyan. Um, and which was a real, it was a, quite an experience. Uh, um, I, I so, don't think I can imagine. <laughs> so uh, a little bit about um, how I came out. Um, I, so I was, you know, I was very much, I was a very square Wesleyan boy when I went to Indiana Wesleyan. Um, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid and had been, um, so this is something that I, that I've been thinking about. Um, I think for those of us who were raised evangelical, um, it's like drinking from a poison well Hmm. that our parents, um, they think they're giving us clean drinking water. It's like, you know, parents in Flint, um, who didn't know, right. Um, they think they're giving us good drinking water. And in fact, they're feeding us poison. And, um, and I was, I had been drinking that water my whole life. Um, so I was a good Christian boy and um, I was seeing a girl and we had been seeing each other for a semester, just hanging out. And we were at that point where we couldn't just hang out anymore. We needed to label the relationship. Yeah. And DTR, so, define the relationship. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so over Christmas break, we both would not without, saying it to each other. We both decided we needed to pray about it. And one night I was praying about this relationship and, you know, all the like stuff that a little Wesleyan boy would pray about. And I heard a voice and the voice said, you can't date her. You like boys. And, um, I don't know if that voice was my subconscious or if it was God or what that voice was. But all of a sudden, everything made sense. And I was like, oh. And um, so I went back to school and I told a professor, I think I'm gay. I, and, um, and he said, you should see this counselor. And so I went to this counselor at school. And um, he had no place in his worldview for someone like me that because in ex-gay therapy, the whole idea is that you're broken, right? That, um, you grow, everyone, everyone is born straight. And at some point you get bent because terrible things happen to you. You have a distant mother or a distant father or, an overbearing mother or sexual abuse, or there's something that, and it results in a really damaged kind of sexuality. And, um, and I didn't like, I had never had sex. I was a good Christian boy. I had a really good family who loved me. Um, I think the reason that I survived therapy at Indiana Wesleyan is because I had really good parents who instilled in me really, a really strong sense of myself. Mm. Um, 
but in his worldview, like, and so I remember the first session, he, like, he had all these questions and, you know, like, are you addicted to porn? And um, do you have sex with men in public places? And like, oh, and I was like, no. And at the end of the conversation, he said, well, I don't think you're gay. And I said, okay, let's start over. I am not attracted to women and I am attracted to men. And um, so we started down the, you know, reparative therapy track, um, reading a lot of books, do, you know, doing a lot of um, talk therapy and other stuff to try to make me straight. And I, I figured out pretty quickly that it wasn't going to work. But I also knew that if I just came out and said, I'm gay, that they would kick me out of school. And I had a five-year grant. And so I stayed in it for two years. Um, I had three different therapists. Um, and, and the last one, I remember at one point he said, um, and this is the poison, right, that, that, that we drink. He, at one point he was like, you know, Tyler, you are just the kind of young man I would want for a son. And what he was saying was, you're, you're really great just the way you are. And yet he still wanted to fix me. He still wanted to change me. And, um, and none of these people believed that I existed, right? Um, because they didn't believe that someone like me could exist. And so at the end of that, I, um, you know, one of the things that happens, especially in Christian therapy, is that you confuse the therapist for God, um, especially if you're young and, you know, mm -hmm. and so, um, and I had sort of done that. And it, and at one point I was just like, you know what, God, if you don't believe that I exist, then I don't believe that you exist. And, um, and I left the church entirely. And, but I couldn't like, I couldn't stop believing in God or having that language doesn't even work for me anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but the metaphor of God was still important to me. Um, and so, so I ended up like, just like asking lots of people, lots of questions about their faith and what worked for them and what didn't work for them. Um, So before and eventually, so yeah, go ahead. Oh no, um, I do you mind if I ask a, a, a few questions about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, about a model. No, no, this was this was all wonderful. Um, so, what around what what time or what what year was this happening at Indiana Wesleyan? So I started at Indiana Wesleyan in 1988, and. I went the full five years. I took full advantage 
of that grant and graduated in 93. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this, this experience that, that you mentioned as far as, um, as, as far as hearing, hearing something clearly tell you or reveal to yourself that you can't date her, you, you like boys. And then yeah. what you mentioned is, is that you actually, you, you trusted a professor um, yes. And I'm, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm curious what the reaction of that professor was and what led them to, uh, what, what led them to refer you to a counselor so quickly or, or how that sort of confidence was kept. Um, because that, I mean, that's, yeah. that's no, yeah, that's no small very, thing. <laughs> yeah. It was a very weird time. Um, because, so I, I, um, I told that professor, um, and I'm not even sure why I told that particular person. Um, and then he was like, you need to go to this counselor. And, and so my parents are, are Wesleyan missionaries. They're, my dad's kind of a big deal in the Wesleyan church, um, before he retired, he was the area director for the Pacific mm. and, um, and wrote a book that's been translated into 27 languages called uh, What Wesleyans Believe. Mm. And, um, and, and it's a small denomination. So right. yeah. they're, they're very well connected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the counselor was a friend of my parents, the first counselor. Hmm. Um, and he was very professional and kept, you know, kept confidences. And, um, but I also, because I was in this therapy to try to become straight and I never had sex, I hadn't broken any rules, right, on campus. Um, I decided just to be very honest and um, fairly quickly, you know, I was like, there's nothing about this that I need to be ashamed of. God told me, right. Um, Was kind of my attitude. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know what I'm called to at the time, you know, I thought, well, maybe all gay people are called to celibacy, which I now think is bullshit. But <laughs> at the time I was like, maybe, you know, um, but, um, but I knew that, that the feelings couldn't be wrong. It would just be what you did with them. And so, so I, I fairly quickly, um, although I didn't tell my parents, um, I told my mother earlier than I told my father. Um, and very early on, I decided that I, that, that I wouldn't, um, that one, I wasn't going to pretend like there was something wrong with me. And two, I wasn't going to act like I was any different from anybody else. And so I wasn't going to have conversations in which I sat down with people and was like, I need to tell you something about myself. I'm gay. 
if it came up in conversation, I wouldn't hide it. And I would just be myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I don't think that that professor had to hold a confidence for very long. Um, because once I accepted that I had attractions to men, I fairly quickly um, started just being honest about it, which is kind of how it happened with my mother. Um, You know, we were sitting on the couch one day and I was in a really bad place, obviously, you know, um, dealing with all of this stuff. And my mom was like, something's wrong. What's going on? And so I said, well, here's what's going on. Um, And my parents have been, I mean, they've been through it. Um, but they have always loved me and always trusted me. And, um, and when I, when I told my dad, my father's the only person that I, that I know of who I said, listen, sit down, I need to tell you something. And that's because my father, he has this way of like, never never talking about things that he doesn't want to talk about. Mm. And so my strategy of if it comes up, I'll tell like never happened with him. Right. And because he just like steer, steer the conversation in directions so that it didn't come up. Yeah. I know some people like that. (laughs) Sort of unconsciously, but, um, but there came a point where there were enough people that knew that I was like, dad's going to find out from someone else. And I would hate that. I would just hate that to happen to him. And so that was when I said, you know, dad, I need to, and, and my dad, um, after, you know, a long conversation, but then I'd been in like a year and a half of X gate therapy or maybe more. Um, and I knew, you know, I knew all of the stories that, and, you know, and I, part of what I said in that conversation, I was like, dad, people will say that you and mom are bad parents. That's part of the story that Christians tell about this. And I need you to know that you weren't bad parents. Um, (laughs) At the end of that conversation, um, my dad said, well, I love you and I trust you. And if you follow God, and I think you will, you'll be okay. And um, honestly, I think that, and this is where I I feel like I don't have some of the baggage that some other ex-grandelicals have. um, Because my parents being Wesleyans and my father being a Wesleyan theologian, um, part of Wesleyan theology is, you know, there's this very strict sort of code, right? Um, Right. You have to act a certain way, but there's also a very strong belief in John Wesley of personal conscience and that you can't sin by accident. You can't, um, sin is, is, um, well, so according to dad's book, 
which um, sin is going against the known will of God. And so you have to know that it's God's will and then not do it. Or know that it's God's will that you not do it and do it anyway. Um, and John Wesley would talk about walking in all of the light that you've been given. And I think my parents, because of that, have been able to say, well, Tyler's walking in all the light that he's been given, and we're walking in all the light that we've been given, and we wish that he would get more light, but we can trust him to God. Um, And so my parents have been actually pretty amazing through all of this. And, um, I mean, all the steps of the way, even, even when I started dating and, um, which they were not happy about. Um, so is that, is that, that when you began dating and everything is that around the same time that you, you mentioned that you had left the church entirely, but you were still exploring the metaphor of God? Yeah. No, um. So both my sister and I, and I think this is part of growing up on the mission field, um, not in American culture, um, both of us never really dated until we dated the man we married. Ah, okay. And, um, And I think, like, I had lots of friends. And I did stuff with people and I got to know people and I had crushes and, you know, all of that. Um, But I didn't actually date anybody until I was like pretty sure that this was somebody I really wanted to spend the rest of my life with. Yeah, that's that's, that's interesting. That didn't happen until I was... I started dating Rob when I was 29. Mm. Um, And so I think for my family, it didn't really feel real until I was 29. Um, Because it was, in their minds, it was theoretical. Okay. Because they had to deal with, with, you know, um, but the other thing about, you know, my mother, um, she's very out as well, um, with her friends and in her church and with other Wesleyans. Um, you know, she told me one day she was at headquarters, like, you know, where that's the national offices of the Wesleyan church. And she was in a conversation with somebody There were, there were two women one of them is a good friend and one of them sort of an acquaintance. They were in a conversation and she said in the course of the conversation, she realized that this person who was a friend was talking about me and Rob and that the other person was kind of confused. And she stopped the conversation and said, um, oh, you probably don't know. My son is gay. And then continued on with the conversation, mm. um, which I think it's kind of amazing. Right, yeah. Um, if if people uh, aren't as familiar with the the Wesleyan Church and from what we've sort of described already, that is 
a bit of a subversive act <laughs> of sorts, yeah. especially in the, especially in something like the the headquarters. Um, that's yeah. not something that would be common. Yeah, um, but it's also been hard for them too. You know, um, I remember one day my mother saying to me, um, and this is this is some of the the poison again. Um, one day we were talking and she started crying and she said, you know, I'm just so tired of people feeling sorry for me because I have a gay son. And, um, and she knew that there were, you know, like there were lots of people in her church who, who thought it was such a tragedy that the Connors you know, John and Margie Connor's son was gay. Um, and it's not a tragedy. It's just who I am. Do you think that was meant to be encouraging to you? Or what, do you think she was just sort of um, just kind of sharing, like groaning I think or, you know? No, I think I think she was just sharing her yeah. experience. Okay. My mom and I are really close. Yeah. And um, and I think she was just, you know, sharing some of what had been hard about this. Mm-hmm. But I also think that we all have to be we all have to follow the path that's right for us. And other people have to figure their stuff out, right? And so in my language, I'm still a Christian, right? I'm a UCC minister. Um, in my language, I talk about being called. And um, if I'm called to be an out gay Christian, then I suppose my mom must be called to be the mother of an out gay Christian, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And, and so... She's got to figure out her call and I've got to figure out my call. And, um, and I can't live her life for her and she can't live my life for me. Right. Is it getting better? that I did want to go back to because I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Um, I actually started thinking about this um, and this was before like my, so my, my father is very, is one of the most intelligent people I know. And he's, he's, he wanted to teach his children to think for themselves. And so um, I think he thought we were going to think like him, but, he did want us to think for ourselves. 
so that's the kind of mind that I have. And so even before I came out to myself, I was still, I was already, right, wrestling with stuff mm-hmm. at Indiana Wesleyan. And, um, and I remember one time, I think this was my sophomore year, and I'd gone camping with a bunch of people, and there were three guys from ministry majors. Um, and um, so for people who aren't from Indiana Wesleyan, a, a ministry major is someone who's in the pastoral ministry track, I guess, is mm-hmm. studying ministry right. at Indiana yeah. Wesleyan. Um, and these guys were older than me, so they were probably like, if I was a sophomore, they were a junior's maybe, or seniors. Um, and if you're at that point in the ministry major, you've, you're pretty committed, right? Right. Um, to Wesleyanism and right. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know if you had this at, at, uh, at the time, but I think around like sophomore year when I, when I was there, they did have, um, some sort of thing that people had to I don't know like sort of like pass I guess especially if you're a CM like a Christian ministries major like they had an interview or something else because I know and one of my earlier conversations with my friend Stephen Jones I think he had an experience where they didn't want to you know pass him or whatever else because of something um mm. yeah so I don't know if that was something that was yeah, common I don't I don't then. know if they had to do that back then that that might be something new because I think that evangelicalism has become more and more entrenched. Yeah, it's much um, more rigid. The farther too, we've gotten, for sure. Yeah, the farther we've gotten into the the culture wars. Mm-hmm. Um, but so these, I had been thinking, you know, and I was like sophomore, right? Thinking. And I was like, you know, I've been thinking, what if the seven days, and this is like now I'm like, wow, this is not in any way like a novel or interesting idea. But I was like, what if the seven days of creation were not days, but were like eons? And, and when you read how, like it starts with, with plants and then what if that's like evolution. And God just used evolution to create animals and humans. And then on the sixth day, he made humans. And, and these two or three ministry majors just like lost their mind. <laughs> and and I, like at first I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be burned at the stake right here. <laughs> There's fire right here we're standing around a campfire and they're gonna burn me right here in this fire um, but but then the more that they talked the more um like they were just bringing up like conspiracy theories about people hiding the fact that humans and dinosaurs lived at the same time and and like total bunk science that was, you know, creationist. And, and like now we have the creation museum, which is just all about bunk science, but 
back, this was in the early days of, you know, that yeah. sort of creation science mythology building. And, and I remember thinking, like, wow, these guys feel like God is so weak that they have to lie on his behalf. And if your God is so weak that you have to lie for him, what kind of God is he? <laughs> and, and, and that for me was kind of the beginning. I was like, I'm not lying for God, right? I'm going to seek the truth and follow the truth wherever it leads me. And God can take care of, at that time it was a him, himself, right? And if he needs me to lie for him, then he's probably not God. <laughs> yeah, right. And, um, and I started thinking about that again when Palin, uh, Sarah Palin became the candidate for vice president. And she was somebody who, like, just lied all the time, right? Um, yeah. And George W. Bush. George W. Bush was, like, was constantly lying to himself about things like the weapons of mass destruction. And, and now, you know, evangelicals have voted for Donald Trump, who Comey describes as being completely untethered from the truth. And, and I think it goes back to this idea that we have to lie to ourselves for our faith in order to make our faith work, in order to protect God. We have to lie to ourselves and we become so used to lying to ourselves that then it just becomes part of what we do all the time. And then, you know, we can't tell the difference between CNN and Fox News. Yeah. Because we've been lying for so long, we, we can't even tell what the truth is. Yeah, that's, that's a very powerful, potent sort of phrase and, and metaphor to be able, like lying, lying in order to believe your faith like that, that's going to stick with me because <laughs> it, well, it um, yeah, it's very, very resonant. <laughs> I think Chris Stroop um, posted something about this. It was a Twitter um, and I think it was a repost of something that he had actually written a while ago mm -hmm. um, in which he, he talked about, maybe it wasn't him, maybe it was somebody else, but talked about when, when, when faith becomes believing impossible things, how that, how that like twists us when, when, when our idea of faith becomes the idea that it's, that faith is believing the impossible, believing things that aren't true um, or that yeah. don't appear to be true. Right. Yeah. Like I think it does something terrible to our minds. And, and I really think, I mean, I think in the public sphere, Sarah Palin was kind of the epitome of that. Um, the way the truth just didn't matter at all. And I think it, it comes from just lying to yourself for so long. Right. Yeah. I, 
a, a lot of people talk about how their sense of deconstruction deals with a lot of cognitive dissonance of like sort of coming to those sorts of realizations that that in order for this God that they have in mind to to be real, then they have to lie to themselves. <clears throat> and I think, yeah, there there is a sense that some people are able to sort of achieve that like two plus two equals five sort of thing from to borrow yeah. from nineteen eighty four. Um and actually mm-hmm. <laughs> accept that uh as as reality um or or as truth like that but but it does do it yes i absolutely agree <laughs> like like uh and i uh, think and i'm just so i'm an extrovert i figure things out as by talking about them mm-hmm. um and i think i i think that it was that commitment to seeking out truth that is actually what got me through coming out at Indiana Wesleyan. Um, Because I was like, huh, I've discovered something new about myself. I'm going to pursue this, see where it takes me. Um, I'm not afraid to find out what's true, right? Yeah. Um, I'm just going to pursue it as far as I can. Yeah. So one one sort of element that we that we didn't touch on that I think would be very important for for gay and, and queer students at Christian colleges even now, um, mm-hmm. I, I am curious, like as part of this, you 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 came out at at Indian Wesleyan in the eighties. Did you experience mm-hmm. what? Did you in any way experience harassment, or did you become a, a pariah as far as you said that you were very open about it and you would tell people when you, when it came up and it was not something you hid. How was that, how was that accepted by the, the rest of the student body um, or the people that, that, that you knew and spoke with? So there was a sense in which I had, although purity culture was not one of the things that I am very grateful of when I hear millennials talking about their ex-evangelical experiences um, is that I did not have to deal with the kind of purity culture that we have now, mm-hmm. um, which is has just become even more insane. Um, but because I was a virgin um, and was like hadn't broken any rules at Indiana Wesleyan. Um, I felt pretty able to to be myself, mm, yeah. and uh, and didn't didn't have any worries that the that I would get kicked out of school. Um, maybe I should have been worried, but I wasn't because I knew I was. I knew that I was following up rules, right? Um, now. Yes, there were people who, you know, I, I remember one woman in particular who, um, when it came up in conversation, and I don't remember how, she, in the course of that conversation, she tried to argue me out of it. And when she realized I wasn't, you know, I was like, this is how I feel. Like, you can't, 
you can't argue me out of being attracted to men. That's just part of who I am. Um, you can argue with me about what I do about that. But, and when she realized she couldn't argue me out of it, she said, I'm sorry, I can't be your friend anymore. Oh, wow. And just like cut me off. Oh my gosh. Completely. Um, there were other people who, um, chose not to know me at all. Um, you know, who just, but I, I, so this is part of like having great parents, right. Um, and being really strong and self-confident. I was just like, if they don't want to know me, they're missing out. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, I'm a great guy. And sorry for them that their prejudices are getting in the way of that. Um, so the other thing was that I found, a, you know, and, and this is what queer kids do at Christian schools. We find our tribe and we hang out with them. Um, and, and so there was some of that as well. Um, that I that I sort of found people who were safe that I could hang out with, um, and and I also uh, there was one professor in particular who was not the one I came out to. Strangely enough, um, I wish I'd come out to this other professor instead, um, who was a safe haven in in her classes. It, like you just knew you could talk about anything. You could like really be authentic with her. And I think she, I, honestly, I think, cause I mean, by the end of Indiana Wesleyan, I, I, my last year I did plan my suicide. Um, I didn't follow through, but I knew how I was going to do it. Um, and I even like, went to the place where I was going to do it and then didn't follow through. Um, But I think it was this professor and a couple other people who saved my life. Literally. Literally saved my life. Um, I'm sorry you, you had to experience that. Yeah. I'm sorry people are still experiencing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, like, now that she's retired, like, who is there who's who's still doing that? Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. You know, another thing that at, at Indiana Wesleyan, um, you know, because toward the end, like, I, I like I would go dancing in Indianapolis and go to bars and um, stuff and have fun, right? And um, and break the rules in those kinds of ways, even though I didn't drink still. Um, and um, and one of the things was when you would see people from school at a place like that people were always so worried, right? Like, oh no, I saw somebody from school. 
And I was always like, but they're here too. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if they're, if they're going to turn you in, they're going to have to tell somebody that they were here. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of those weird little Christian college quirks. <laughs> yeah. But I do think, I, I do think that it was easier in some ways. Um, you know, also 88 to 93 was the height of um, that AIDS epidemic too. And so there was a lot of craziness. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that I did at Indiana Wrestling was that I, I joined this group of um, AIDS peer, HIV and AIDS peer educators. They were people who were um, supposed to educate other, other kids about safe sex and stuff in, in a very like puritanical kind of Indiana Wesleyan kind of way. Um, yeah. But, but it, the culture wars were not, um, and purity culture was not as crazy as it has become. Yeah. I yeah. think it, uh, you you missed it by about a decade, I think, probably. Yeah. So it really yeah. did ramp up in the in the nineties and the two thousands and even even today. I mean there's a lot of people talking speaking out against it, but I'm, it's it's alive and well today, sure, as well. Um yeah. but uh but yeah. And like the purity ceremonies and the rings and Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> It's gotten it's gotten bonkers for sure, yeah. and I'm I'm thankful that that you that you didn't have to uh, worry about that. <laughs> like that's you had you had your own struggles, and and I'm thankful that you you didn't have to struggle with that. So actually, let's. Um, I feel like we could. I mean, I went there. I'm very curious about your your experience at Indiana Wesleyan. Um, you know, I could talk about that probably endlessly. <laughs> um, but I'm curious what what happened afterwards because of the fact that that as you've said, you're you're a, a United Church of Christ minister, and, and you've also mm-hmm. written a written a book. Uh, about homosexuality in the Bible. Um, so, so yeah. the story doesn't, uh, clearly doesn't, uh, end there in Anna Wesley and it, it continues. And, um, so, so what sort of came next as, as far as you, you, we mentioned earlier that, that after you, what happens when you leave the church and yet you still have some, uh, sort of interest in, I think you, the way you described it was that the metaphor of God was still important. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 And, um, I ended up, so I left Christianity for a while and, um, 
was just kind of wandering around and I became this annoying guy at parties. He's like, Oh, you're a Buddhist. What's that like? Tell me about that. (laughs) Um, You know, how does that work for you? Um, Because I'm also an extrovert. So (laughs) I want to process with other people. Right. Um, um, And then I ended up coming back to Christianity through the historical Jesus movement. Um, I started to read books about the, from the Jesus seminar and um, and was like, wow, I really like this guy. I don't like Christianity, but I really like Jesus. And, um, and then ended up sort of by accident, a friend wanted to go to an MCC, Metropolitan Community Church, uh, which is a um, predominantly LGBT denomination in Indianapolis. At the time, it was called Jesus MCC, now it's Life Journey Church. Um, she wanted to go to this church and try it out and asked me if I would go with her because she was afraid to go by herself. And um, and I figured it wasn't a real church and I'd, I'll try anything and, you know. And so I went with her. Um, she ended up not sticking and... I ended up like really loving the way that these people were able to disagree with each other on a lot of theological things and hang together because they all love Jesus and, um, and ended up joining, joining that church, um, going there for quite a while. And and that was actually where the book came from. Um, the church continues to be a very evangelical-oriented church. Um, the, the pastor is a former Baptist of some conservative kind, not Southern, more conservative than Southern. Um, and um, and he, he came to me one day, and I... By then I was in seminary, so I have two degrees from seminary. The first degree is a Master of Arts in Religion, and I basically just went because I wanted to talk about God, and so I kind of took a sabbatical and went to seminary. Um, The second one is a Master of Divinity, which I got when I felt a call to ordination and I needed a Master of Divinity to be ordained, Um, but this was the first time I was in seminary, and, and and I was, I'm a good writer, and um, and our pastor came to me, and he was like, I'm dealing with all of these people whose main hang-up, because he was doing a lot of counseling, right? It's a mm-hmm. gay church in Indiana. Um, and he was like, I'm dealing with a lot of people whose main hang-up is the Bible, and the only resources that I have are either books that take the Bible seriously from an evangelical perspective and are anti-gay, or books that are pro-gay, but kind of don't take the Bible very seriously from, and, and evangelicals find them very hard to read. Mm-hmm. And he said, could you help me write a book that could talk about the Bible from the, in language that evangelicals understand that is also pro-gay? And, um, and so the book that we ended up writing together was The Children Are Free. And, um, and it's ended up doing really well, like um, lots and lots of copies 
have sold and it's been translated into seven languages. And um, I'm actually um, going to be going to Botswana in the end of May, beginning of June to a LGBT interfaith conference. Um, oh, wow. Mostly because of that book. And I, I regularly get emails from people who are like, you saved my life. Um, and, wow. that's amazing. Um, yeah. So anyway, he and I wrote this book together and, um, where was I going with that? Oh, you, you were asking me, how did I, um, so, and then I met my husband he hated Indiana and we moved to New Mexico <laughs> and um, because he wanted to move West and I had this master of arts in religion. So I said, I'll follow you. You find a job somewhere. And, um, and we ended up in New Mexico and that was when I joined the United Church of Christ and, um, and found for me, a denomination that, like that little church in Indianapolis that I liked so much, which is actually a pretty big church, um, where people can be together in diversity of theology and disagreement around theology, um, but still be together because there's something about the Jesus story that matters to us. Mm-hmm. Um that was the place for me. And it was in that church that I, that I ended up feeling a call to ordination. And I think one of the things, um, so I, as I was a hospice chaplain for five and a half years. And um, one of the things that I think is common to our stories as ex-evangelicals and this, I really felt this coming to the United Church of Christ. It's a great denomination. I was really happy to find it. Like, there's so many things that I love about being UCC. And I had to give up a lot to get to where I am. And um, when I was a hospice chaplain, I, I went to a conference once and um, studied under a man named Ken Doka, who came up with this theory of disenfranchised grief. And disenfranchised grief is any grief that is not socially recognized. So um, if there's not rituals for it, if people don't see it, um, then the grief becomes disenfranchised. And Kandoka came up with the theory because he had a woman who had been married for 20 years. Her husband cheated on her. She divorced him. And like four months later, he died. And all of her friends were like, aren't you glad the bastard's dead? And she was like, no, I'm not glad at all. We were married for 20 years. I loved him. And, um, and he realized that she had this grief that 
there was no place for it. She couldn't go to the funeral. You know, she was the ex-wife. Um, and, and I think that for those of us who have left evangelicalism um, or really left any faith mm-hmm. community, um, that there is a grief that is not socially recognized. Yeah. And, um, and I think even still, like, while I'm really glad to be part of this new denomination, I'm glad to have found what I found. I'm so glad for my husband and I'm, you know, I'm, thank God I'm gay. Um, there's also grief in the things that I have lost in, um, you know, not being part of the denomination that I was raised in, yeah. not being the, um, it, you know, oddly enough, I'm fifth generation clergy, but I'm not a Wesleyan minister. Right. And, um, and so I'm not the minister that my parents thought I was going to grow up to be. And, right. um, and I actually think that that this podcast, um, so one of the things about disenfranchised grief, um, one of the things about all kinds of grief is one of the ways that we deal with grief is by telling stories. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the things that grief counselors often do is just make space for people to tell their stories and, and sometimes tell the same story over and over again and keep telling the same story until they need, until it doesn't have the power anymore. Um, and I think that that's some of what this podcast does is that it gives those of us who were raised evangelical or, or who became evangelical and then left it um, to tell those stories and, um, have a place for those. The other thing that I think I wonder about is if we don't need rituals for people to let go. Yeah. Right. Um, and one of the powerful things about rituals is that they're um, they're often the most powerful rituals are done in community. Right. Um, so you can have a ritual, you know, where you, you know, write down the name of the pastor who abused you and burn it yourself. Um, and that can be important, but it, it can be even sometimes depends on the person, right? Everybody's grief is different, but um, sometimes that ritual can be, um, more powerful if you have a few friends who gather with you and you tell that story and then burn that paper or, you know, do something to ritualize that grief in a, in a way that has community. And one of the things when you have disenfranchised grief is that you don't have a community to recognize it. You don't get to have a funeral. You don't, um, you know, if you're the mistress of the guy who died, um, you don't get invited to the funeral. That grief is disenfranchised. 
um, they have a funeral, but you don't. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's one of the things that we're learning to do. I think in the Facebook group and in this podcast, um, I think about um, the the guy that you had on uh, a few weeks ago with the album. Yeah, um, uh, Derek Webb. Yeah. Yeah, Derek Webb's album. And I listened to that and I, um, and, you know, recognized the, the ritualizing of, of the grief in that music mm-hmm. um, that I think is really powerful. Yeah. And, and part of that story also, I think, for people who are friends of ex-evangelicals, um, is that too often we want people to be excited because they found freedom. And so like in the UCC, we want you to be so excited that you found us, right? Mm-hmm. But we also need to give you space to be sad that you left your Baptist church. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think there's really something to that, to to all of the things that you've said, and I think that um, there, even even amongst my my own personal experience, I had started attending an Episcopal church um, shortly after the election with with my family, mm-hmm. and there's there's something to that, and there's something to um, clergy being aware of the sorts of things that that people who have had to leave and have had to grieve um losing a community like there there's something to them knowing and and having wisdom and giving that space and i um my my priest uh deborah she's she's been phenomenal at that at listening and uh uh, and and giving that space and that's something that I I think is for people that are still trying to engage, um, giving yourself personal space and sort of you know making sure that you put the uh, you know you be clear with your boundaries and the things that you need to work through when you're talking to a clergy person like that that can be important mm-hmm. absolutely um, yeah yeah. Yeah, I the disenfranchised grief as a as um that's that's such a powerful sort of model of of what it is that that so many people are experiencing in in different facets of, you know, not always in the same way, but but it is a a common sort of thread like and I think there's something to that like when you lose a community a lot of times is what's at stake. You know, like there's already something about grieving, losing a belief that that has its own grief process. But then when there's a social consequence that ups the ante by like to the nth degree, just exponentially. Um, So that's such a such a good way to uh, to put that 
experience and very, very apt. I think another, another thing about that, you know, I'm 25 years into my deconstruction. Mm -hmm. Um, and it does get better. Um, (laughs) like there's a lot more freedom now than there was 20, even 20 years ago, you know, when I was five years into my deconstruction, um, and a lot more joy in it and sort of, but the other thing is that one of the things about grief is that you sometimes don't know when it's going to come up. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, working with people as a chaplain, working with people, you know, who had lost children or spouses or, um, which was the kind of work that I did. Um, and it had been years and their friends were like, you know, how can you not be over it? Oh, kind of, no one would ever be that crass, but. Right. Um, no sort of unspoken like things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like there have been a couple times where like I'm listening to your podcast, Walking the Dogs, and someone says something or tells a story and it brings up like a a remembrance of that grief that's 25 years old. Um, And I start crying while I'm walking the dogs and listening to this podcast. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I think it's a good thing. Okay. (laughs) You know? Um, Yeah. But I think it's a, it's an experience that is, that is human and common. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, that one of the things that, um, to just sort of build off of what you've said there, I, um, one of the things that people who are evangelical who've, who've gone through the process of, of losing something very central to their identity or their community or both, that they, they realize that processing takes, an indefinite amount of time, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it, it might take, uh, it might take years and it might take decades. Um, but you know, finding other people that understand what that means and accepts it for what that, what that means is, is valuable. Yeah. And I think the, the reconstruction is also, there's a lot of joy in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and see, for me, it's you know, it's always been about seeking new knowledge and seeking new truths and um, discovering new things about myself and new things about the world and new things about God, the way that I, the way that I know God. And so how do you feel like that's, um, how do you, how do you feel like that's changed over these 25 years? I, I know that's a big question and I know that, like, uh, but I mean, just, just in, in general and the sorts of things that you mentioned as far as like, you, you feel more joyful now than you, than you did. Um, when, when all this, when all your, your first stages of deconstruction were beginning. Um, I'm curious because you because you began this in a, in a, in a different time. And I, you know, I, I feel like I have a wonderful opportunity to ask you 
as someone who who is in a different who has been at this longer than I have and longer than a lot of the people that I've spoken to or had the opportunity to speak to yet. Um, so I'm any sorts of, any sorts of insight you, you have in that would be, would be wonderful to hear. I think one of the things that, that really brought a, a sense of ease for me um, in fundamentalism and evangelicalism there is this emphasis on certainty mm-hmm. and um, and I, I really I, I really like um, Karen Armstrong in her book The Battle for God she was the first person I ever read who was not a fundamentalist who got fundamentalism, who mm-hmm. really understood it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I really, I, I agree with her characterization, which is that, that fundamentalism is essentially a modernist religious, um, orientation and, and modernism, you know, the, the scientific method and this idea that we could know everything that we, that, everything was was quantifiable and you could figure it all out you could, given enough time you know you could know everything mm-hmm. the theory of everything um, and um, and this like real like sense of having to be certain about everything and um, one of the things that has really and and so, you know, there were, there was a period where I felt like I, I needed to be a theist or an atheist. Yeah. Right. I had to be one or the other. Right. And, um, and there was actually, it was, it, it was actually another Karen Armstrong book, um, the case for God, which is not a, is not, it's mistitled. Um, it's actually the case for religion, religious practice. Um, but that book helped me sort of give up the question, is there a God? Just sort of be like, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what practices work for me and what stories work. And are the stories making me a better human? Are the practices making me a better human or not? Mm-hmm. And... Um, And not feeling like I had to answer the theist-atheist conundrum or even ask that question anymore. Like, like not even worry about the question. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that brought me a lot of freedom um, to be able to let go of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that and now that. I'm I'm reading a book. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it. It's very, very, very heavy philosophy theology. Um, called the insistence of God, and um, by John D. Caputo, and he talks about 
um, God perhaps. And this idea of God being the perhaps, um, the perhaps justice, perhaps love, perhaps God perhaps, um, which is also God perhaps not, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and I've been, think, I've been thinking a lot about that and toying a lot with that, with Jack Caputo's God, perhaps, and, and just allowing the practice, the stories, particularly this long story of Christianity that I'm a part of that started with Jesus and is continuing um, to be a part of that story and also to recognize that evangelicalism was also part of my story mm -hmm. um, and it was a path that was a dead end and that I've now gone another trail yeah yeah, that, all of that is, <laughs> again, I, I think I've already said this, it's very, it's, it's very resonant to me. That's, that's very encouraging to, to hear that, um, that your, your path has, has been in so many ways, much more, um, validating and edifying than what you found in evangelicalism. Um, yeah. because it is a, it, uh, I mean, showing showing my own bias, and I mean, obviously, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think evangelicalism is much more than a dead end, um, uh, and it's not as rewarding or or uh, encouraging or edifying as the other paths that are available. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, to to hear that. To In hear, fact, I think it's poison. <laughs> right. Honestly. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I, yeah, I don't, I, I, I think I mentioned on Kevin Garcia's podcast. I don't, I don't think it should continue. I don't think it should necessarily continue to exist. Um, I don't know that there's anything necessarily con continuing to be positive about it. Um, or that it can contribute to Christianity or to society. <laughs> um, and poison is a great way to put it because it's it's hurting people actively. Um, yeah. Yeah. Killing, killing people actively. Right. Yes, killing. Yes. It, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but to hear, I mean, to hear your story of 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 leaving it, of to to use language, uh, to of coming out of it, um, you you yeah you quite literally came out in it, and then. You also, you also were, you know, sort of delivered from it or or left it, uh, and found something, uh, found something, frankly, better from from the way you talk about it, you know, yeah. Um, and that's I, I think the other thing that I've, the other thing that I've learned from this journey is, um, the importance of telling your story. Yeah. You know, um, right. and. I mean, 
in grief counseling, that's important to tell your story. But in, but it's also um, Justin Lee, who is the founder of the Gay Christian Network. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he still considers himself an evangelical. But he's still trying to reclaim that word. I've given up on that. Yeah. Um, Best of luck. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, he says when you're when you're talking with someone, you know, he, a big part of his ministry is talking across divides. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, tell your story because you own your story and no one can argue with your story. It's yeah. your story. Right. You, you are the expert on your story. And, um, and I think that that is something that I have, that I have learned to, to do um, partic- I mean, because I'm still, you know, my parents are Wesleyans and they're big mucky mucks in the Wesleyan church and all of their friends and family are Wesleyans. And so um, part of my learning has also been to just be myself in telling my story and yeah. not backing down from that and not being afraid of it or mealy mouthed about it. Right. Um, and you tell your story well. Thank <laughs> well, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a very good story and I'm glad you're telling it and I'm glad, I'm glad your parents gave you the confidence to tell it or contributed to, to your confidence to tell it. Yeah, me too. And I'm thankful for this, venue for people to be able to tell their stories. Yeah, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be able to, to make it possible, um, in the, the small way I'm able to, um, is there anything else that, that we haven't sort of talked about for your, for your story? I mean, and honestly, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, <laughs> um, but, but I know <laughs> that, here. um, but I know that I, you know, um, to pull back the curtain, I do record in the evenings. <laughs> people didn't already know that, right. so I'm always sensitive yeah. to to um, people's bedtimes. <laughs> to be honest, um, uh, so I don't. I want to make sure that 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 we could that that we talk about anything else that that has come up for you, or that that um, you feel like we we should loop back to, or or explore because you're 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 really preaching fire <laughs> uh, on, on a lot so, of stuff. Um, I suppose if people want to continue the conversation, how to get a hold of me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, my last, um, I'm easily Googleable as long as you know how to spell my last name, which is C-O-N-N-O-L-E-Y. And I'm at Connolly on all of the, you know, all of the social media things and I'm on Facebook. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Well, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean yeah. to cut you off. <laughs> no, that's all. I was going to say, if you Google me, you'll find, you'll probably even find my email address and my phone number yeah. out there somewhere. And your book is, is, is your, your book is currently, uh, is it, is it in print? Yeah, it is. Awesome. It's available on Amazon, all the places, all the places. And again, and, to, yeah, and my co-author and I don't get any money from that. Um, we decided the 
the publisher puts all is a nonprofit. They put all the money back into, and they also allow people to print it in other countries. Oh, okay. Um, that's and very, that's you know, very... you have to get permission and all that. But, yeah. but that's I think that's part of why it has done so well in places like Africa and South America and other places. Yeah, that's great, and that's very very laudable of you to do that with the with with the profits. Um, and the name of that book again to to mention that is the children are free. Yes. Great. Um, I just feel like I need to say this on this podcast. Sure. Um, yeah. That book was written from a very evangelical perspective, and I no longer read the Bible that way. Um. I understand that there's still people who read the Bible that way. And, and we wrote the book so that people like in really simple language, so you could give it to your grandmother um, and, or your cousin or anybody. Um, but I've also grown a lot. That book is now was published in 19 in 2000. Mm-hmm. So it's 18 years old. Yeah. Um, so don't judge me. Um, <laughs> uh, my, narrow evangelicalism that shows up in that book. Yeah. To, I mean, the, I don't, I, I don't still, think anyone, I was still at the place where I thought I could reclaim. I was like, well, I love the Bible. Evangel evangelicalism is about the Bible being important and the Bible is important to me. Um, right. Well, I don't think anyone uh, listening to your story would, would come to that conclusion, <laughs> but on, on, piggybacking off of that i think that making that resource available for people that listen to this show that may have someone in their life that that could get something from that i I think that's a great thing to to plug here um because because there is um there is something to to the evangelical perspective that a lot i mean people from listening to the podcast may not be able to um to read read that without having concerns, but but they can provide something like that to someone else. Um, it, it does make me think of of other uh, like uh, a Peterson Toscano's work. Who he does he does fill that sort of dialogue role, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that that books like that are extremely valuable to make those dialogues possible. A lot of those dialogues people have to fit, have to have. Um, and making any making any tool or, or book available to help facilitate that is is wonderful. So, um, so I'm yeah. very very happy to Peterson. to mention that. <laughs> yeah, Peterson's a friend of mine. I love his work, and um, and I think um, he and I have a very similar approach to the Bible the way we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, that like. I mean, I couldn't not love those stories. I grew up, like, I learned to tell stories by reading Esther and reading Genesis, right? Right, um, yeah. Those, the, the way those stories are structured, like, infuses the way that I tell stories and the way that I think. And um, and so I continue to love those texts. And I mean, I'm still a Christian minister, so I still preach from those texts. Right. Um, yeah. I just don't I don't I don't feel a need to defend myself against them anymore. Right. Um, and I yeah. think that's some of what, what we do in that book. Oh, that okay. 
I no longer feel a need for. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, that that's a that's a good point. Um, but uh, yeah, again, I, I think I think any sort of resource that that's available for people to provide to someone that 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 they um, may need to have a dialogue with for whatever reason yeah. that that's that's yeah. valuable. So I'm glad it's still out there. I'm glad um, you were the person to write it, <laughs> and uh, and I'm glad to plug it. Um, so uh, Tyler, thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. You're welcome. And thank you for, again, thank you for this space. I think this is a really important space. Thank, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much.